I have just one thing to say about that scene, which is that the only way that Master Eamon or whatever his actual name is could have been more of a badass in that moment is if he'd had like a giant stew pot on the fire and just like crawled inside of it with (laughs) celery and carrots and was like, make me a motherfucking stew. Bring it. (laughs) I would have liked to have seen him light himself. Yeah. That would have been pretty beast. He's like, bitch, I have oil. Someone hand me my... (laughs) Or just like, they had like a fire, right? They had like, they were all standing around a fire. Like, He just walks right into it. (laughs) Yeah. Or just like, just like trust fall, like straight into the bunk. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been awesome. Wow. That's a, that's a really different kind of trust. (laughs) And then you're like, damn it, Stuart. Because the dude doesn't catch him. Like it was... Man, guys, you're, you've gotten really dark. <laughs> this, is the, this is the last time we have team building exercises. Welcome back to Word of the Witnesses, our 12 Monkeys Rewatch podcast. We are entering season four, but let me specify, as always, this is a rewatch podcast. If you have not seen it, the entire series from the pilot to the beginning, oddly enough, you are not supposed to be here, but please go finish it. You deserve it. And then come back and listen with us because we want to talk to you. I am Beep and I am joined as always by the lovely Cece. Hey guys. I have been working on a project, original sci-fi story. I think I've mentioned it on the pod before, but season one of that is out, the first eight episodes. It's called Octimity. You can find it on Twitter at O-C-T-I-M-I-T-Y. That's how you spell it. And um, it's on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, Stitcher, as Aaron would say, all the podcast getting places. (laughs) (laughs) Which reminds me, Professor Aaron is here. Hello, I'm here. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor. Uh, you may remember me from such 12 Monkeys rewatch podcasts as <laughs> I don't remember which ones, but I've been on a couple. <laughs> Singing Cher? Yes. That's my Last favorite. Last time I was here, I sang Cher with Beep, but I don't think that's happening today. Um, I also have a podcast called Metastation. You can find us on Twitter at Metastation100 or on SoundCloud or iTunes and other podcasts getting places. And um, right now, me and my podcast partner, Claire, are covering his dark materials. Um, So we've got the first three episodes up um, and then we're taking a break for Thanksgiving, but then we'll be back with... um, with more the week after Thanksgiving. It's a little bit sad that we have to take the break the week that Lin-Manuel Miranda is finally on, but, you know, Mm. it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. We could just do all our screaming. (laughs) (laughs) And then scream again. Exactly. (laughs) Um, I think that's all I have to say about myself, other than I'm happy to be here again. Thank you for having me. Yay. Um, And I don't know, you can find me on Twitter at a capital check. I just yell about other. I just yell about TV and TV other people make. It sounds so. like crestfallen. Yeah, I don't know. I, I yell at. I guess. Whatever. I get. I yell about. What it. are you yelling about right now? That I'm watching or yeah. Um, let's see. Buffy. I saw not. Um, Buffy. I'm watching Buffy. Um, and for the just, first time. For the first time. Um, so that is 
really fascinating everyone's 20-year-old and yet extremely passionate reactions um, <laughs> to my uh, 42-year-old watching Buffy for the first time, but with my daughter, which is actually amazing um, how it kind of stands the test of time. Um, I saw Knives Out. That is mm. amazing. Really, really, really good. Really, really smart. It's a really fun murder mystery. It's also I don't want to use a bad pun, but I don't know how else to say it. Really, really razor sharp social commentary and political commentary. So mm. that's what I've been. That's what I've been yelling about. We're on season four. It is like as much as I love uh, every season of the show. This is truly one of the great seasons of television, like of all time. Um, so I feel a little like. Uh, it's a little daunting talking about these episodes. I don't know if you guys feel this way. Like I'm kind of, especially going back and watching this one. Today we're talking about 401 The End. It's written by Sean Tretta and directed by David Grossman. Um, this is one of those that I, I think, I feel like the first time I was focused so much on the, like the action, um, and sort of the really high stakes that then when you go back now that you've seen it all, there are some scenes that packs a serious emotional punch. Mm-hmm. Um, which we're going to get to. Um, but I wanted to talk about a couple of big picture things before we jump in scene by scene. Um, and the first is, you know, the three of us are, and, and probably some of our listeners, are veterans of watching shows that, you know, of course, drama comes from conflict. But there is a breaking point when you put your characters that are your sort of your found family that you're supposed to be cheering for and you put them through so much conflict that it reaches a breaking point. And I was conscious of the fact that we're coming off of – if you think about all the different permutations of, of sides and arguments that these various characters have been on um, and it's been kind of musical chairs as to who's aligned with who, right? Um, but even the back half of season three, you've had, you know, Cassie shoot Deacon and, and Joe, you know, Team Jones versus Team Casserole and Jones shoot Ethan and some serious betrayals and like emotional, physical trauma. And then I think very wisely, they hit the ground running and throw them into an unbelievably high stakes, they're the underdog, it's all hands on deck or we're all going to die scenario. And it kind of forces all of the characters to like put their shit aside and work together. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, ma- yeah, that makes sense. And I was thinking about with um, with Cassie and Jones in particular, because I think that's like in this episode is, is sort of the – the relationship that is that is like really you know at its breaking point that it that almost breaks in the form of Cassie almost letting her die. Um, I also think it's like really smart to let that be kind of like a point of to to give Cassie that sort of moment af- uh, with um, Cole later on where she pauses to reflect on like what it means that she did want Jones to die to like say out loud that she wanted it to happen and to sort of reflect on what that means about where they're at and who she is, you know, rather than either framing it as either having her be sort of defensive about it or framing it as, you know, like a logical choice. You know what I mean? Like making mm-hmm. it about sort of where these characters are at emotionally with each other and with themselves and the situation that they're in and sort of have those moments of like, of like regret. Um, even before they're kind of flung back into being forced to sort of all survive together. Um, because it really, 
you know, it kind of like uh, takes what could be just a sort of like conflict and makes it a piece of of character building um, and a piece of inner conflict for Cassie, not just sort of conflict between characters, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And, you know, that's a good point, Aaron, because as big as some of these action sequences are, this is still like 42 minutes of TV that makes time for those quiet conversations where Mm -hmm. it lets us get into characters' heads so that even though the characters and we as the audience are like, okay, we like, even if I'm, you know, even if you were sitting there and you were mad at Jones for shooting Ethan or you were mad at Cole for lying to Jones, like, whatever side you fell on watching, the, like, the back half of season three, it throws the audience in as much um, with the stakes because whoever side you're on, you're not probably on Olivia's side when she's like, kill, <laughs> you know, like, kill them all. So it's forcing us, but it's also not pretending like it didn't happen. Which, you know, can be the other risk that a show runs in in trying to, you know, you have conflict and you have characters on opposite sides to create drama and then you try and stitch it back together too quickly. And then the audience also feels like, yeah, but when are people going to like talk about this stuff, right? Like, (laughs) so yeah, it's a really deft balance. You also have in 310, they gave us the scene where Cassie and Deacon obviously had this exchange of like forgiveness. But they didn't show that with Cassie and Jones. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have these two, you know, and they were kind of like the leaders of that in some way. And so you have it now, like, again, they're standing mother to mother, even though only one of them is able to make decisions. I mean, the other one's sitting there dying. But also a lot of Cassie's struggle has been internal. And when you have a character like that, like a POV character that you don't necessarily always know exactly what's gone going on with them i feel like it's so important to literally put us in their shoes and like she says out loud like this is what i was thinking like we could have extrapolated what she was going through in that moment when she was like hey forget you jones but like (laughs) to go further and say you know not only was she didn't say like well she shot my son you know she (laughs) was like i'm like i'm losing myself And it's not even just about Jones. Like, this is about me, too. Exactly. Like, I wanted her to die, and that is fucking terrifying, because who am I if I want that, you know? Right? Yeah. She's a – I mean, who is she? She's a doctor, right? Like, the the Cassie's entire – you know, her entire journey has been whether whatever the means were has been to save people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, and whatever she believes right now as far as, like – um, loops and turns and they're only making it worse. If you want to have even a sliver of hope, like logically, you don't get rid of Jones. <laughs> like, yes, exactly. You don't yeah. get out of this without her. No, exactly. Right. Like like well, choosing to let Jones die is really choosing to say like, okay, I am, I am entirely letting go of any possibility of being able to do anything to change the situation. You know, it's like, it's in some yep. ways like dooming everyone. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting considering where her arc is going at the end of yes. <laughs> this season. Yeah. When she saves everybody. When she does. <laughs> yes. When she does save everyone. Correct. Um, at the cost of her own sort of emotional desires and needs. Well, yeah. And so that brings me to the other kind of big theme that hit me watching this time, um, especially knowing where we're going at the end of this season with Cole having to erase himself or Cassie having to give up personal happiness is, is this theme of sacrifice. Um, and, you know, 
Cole kind of lays it out at the end of the episode as a reason for why they need to keep going and they can't give up hope. He lays out in two episodes, we lose Ethan, Lasky, Whitley. From our character's point of view, for all they know, Deacon. And we know that Jones has sacrificed herself, right? Like the clock is now ticking on how much time Jones has left because she's exposed herself to radiation. And and you have all these acts in this episode of, you know, whether it's Deacon going out almost behind enemy li- lines to put explosives on the tower or – or Whitley sacrificing himself by fighting all of the army of the 12 monkeys that are coming to give Jones more time so that she can sacrifice herself, right? It's just like one sacrifice for another sacrifice. And how this episode, you know, through sort of a, the monologue voiceover that Jones has towards the end of the episode is sort of talking about atonement or redemption, you know, for the things mm-hmm. that you've done and how sacrifice in this story is a part of that. Um, you know, there's so much talk throughout all four seasons of the one versus the many, but, you know, we talked last time, particularly with Jennifer saving Ethan and then Ethan saving all of them, that, you know, saving someone is often how they change things for the positive, but so is being willing to like sacrifice yourself, right? So like instead yeah. of sacrificing the one, it's being willing to sacrifice yourself. And there's something about this episode with all of these different characters that are sort of making in some ways the ultimate sacrifice that just had me thinking about that as a theme of this show and how that's a piece of either redemption or atonement. Yeah. Um and I guess whether it's redemption or atonement sort of depends on the person and the specific sacrifices they're making, mm-hmm. I suppose. <laughs> right. Like Jones, you know, Jones begins this episode when she's unconscious, thinking back on what, if, you know, it's kind of a, a catch up for the audience um, on what reminding us what happened in 310, but they definitely show us her shooting Ethan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, Jones knows that she made some pretty serious judgment errors um, mm-hmm. that led them to the point where they're at, you know, with Olivia now in charge of Titan. All of that, part of all of those events is Jones trusting her, right? Um yeah. And shooting Ethan and all of that. And I think, I don't know, I, I, when I was watching this time, I think that's a piece of driving her to do what she does in terms of exposing herself to the radiation. Um, and, and, you know, Cole also reminds her what she did at Spearhead at the end of the episode, right? It's definitely like reminding us of the some of the things that Jones has done. And I think it's interesting that it's reminding us of all the times when Jones has sacrificed other people's lives or bodies in service of her goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you're right. So the fact that, the, you know, that this – this episode, the kind of like redemption that she's able to get is is a because I think, or at least it sort of thematically fits that this is her finally putting herself on the line in a way that we haven't really seen before. Um, you know, sort of like accepting that making this choice to save everyone is means that she will inevitably, you know, like die of radiation poisoning, if not her stab wound. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> that does feel different from Choices that she's made previously. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess in Lullaby, she was willing to – she was asking Cassie to kill her, like, to end it all. But, yeah, this feels a little bit – 
I mean, this is the beginning of a Jones that's going to, I think, engage in the most self-reflection than we've seen her do, particularly in the next episode in Ouroboros. Yeah. And I also think that her asking Cassie to kill her in uh, Lullaby is in his, kind of like different from this because, you know, for one thing, it was a sort of, you know, just like shoot me in the head so it's over fast. And second of all, that was for Hannah, right? Like, so that in, in many ways, like that was a function of Jones's what really was at the heart, the kind of like selfish core of Jones's whole um, modus operandi through the first part of the series where she's sort of like, we're saving seven billion, but really for her, it's about Hannah. And that was still about Hannah. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this is, is, is not just about Hannah, you know, like it's actually something more altruistic on her part than I think it had been. Especially in the sense that in the 310 finale, she, she kind of like gave up Hannah. Yes. You know, looking at her saying, I'm sorry, like, if you're about to die, I'm sorry, like, I have to do this. Mm -hmm. Because this is for 7 billion people. And she chose that over Hannah. And I think you're right, Erin, that it's different from Lullaby in the sense that she just kind of thought it would all be undone at that point. And then she would get Hannah back. Like, in this case, she's she's just like, I'm gonna die. And I don't know what good it's gonna do. But this is the last chance we have. Mm, Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to sort of accept that that death will come in order to save these people in this moment the only way I can. Right. No guarantee that I'm gonna get my world with my daughter. Yeah, I think you're totally right, B. Yeah. Um, the other, the other big picture, and this is, it's so funny because the whole idea, you know, this is an episode that it's entitled The End. <laughs> the finale is obviously called The Beginning. Um, and, and it features, it begins with the Ouroboros, with the primaries um, in medieval times, and it ends with the Ouroboros, both with the team at Raritan discussing it, and obviously Jennifer stealing the one from the museum in Prague. But it's an episode, you know, that it's called The End. The end of the episode takes us back to the beginning, and it really just makes you sit back and think about all of all of the different circles. Um, in the show that are on so many different levels, I feel like you could probably like we could spend the in, the next like two hours. <laughs> We're not going to, but like talking about them. We're going to talk about sort of the references when they talk about the Ouroboros and different cultures. We're going to save that as a as a rabbit hole for the end. Um, but I was thinking about sort of all of the different ways that there are circles in this show. Um, obviously, there's a lot of closed time loops. Um, And even in this episode, you've got Project Karen, which was, you know, Jones began thinking of how to move the facility because Deacon and and Cassie saw Raritan destroyed um, back in Brothers, right? Which was in the future from where they are now. Um, And that's what gave her the idea to do it. So that in of itself is a loop because they witness the aftermath of the episode we're watching now, and that's what's in, that's what inspires Jones and Lasky to start working on it. Um, and that's also did I, I kind of uh, read that also as that being what inspired Deacon to figure out like that hammer. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because he remembers that you know that um, tower's gone. That tower's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's oh, I had never thought of that. That's a good idea. Yeah, that's a really good thought. Um, then you have um, a, a, a kind of a circle of you've got 
Cole is the one who's not losing hope. But I think a big part of that, I mean, part of that is obviously who Cole is um, and sort of that mantra that was handed down to him from his father, from Hannah, from Elliot Jones. But but it also is because he's the character who's had the benefit of talking to a future version of himself, you know, that's kind of this other loop with future asshole where we're and we're physically need to be back at that place, you know, when he when they walk through the kind of ruins of the lobby of the Emerson Hotel. And then you have sort of the Ouroboros itself and that riddle, that riddle in and of itself is a circle because the reason why child Cole knew about it is because Hannah passed that down to him through Matthew Cole. And Hannah got that from Jennifer and realized the significance of it because of the conversations that we see in this episode. So it's like, even the story about the Ouroboros is an Ouroboros. Does that make sense? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, it's just no, all... I was thinking as rewatching it when I was rewatching it this morning, um, and I, re- I just finished rewatching the whole the whole series pretty recently, but like the amount of uh, foreshadowing of Hannah being his mother starting in this episode is just like, like overwhelming. It's one of those things where sort of like you go back, you know, once you've seen, you've actually seen the reveal and you're like, how did I not know? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Oh, it's like beating you over the head every second. Like, like, hello, mothers. (laughs) (laughs) I will not let you walk alone, she says to her son. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. I yeah, know. It's just like, this is a case of Jennifer, you know what I mean? Like, you yeah. always know, you you know throughout the whole series, like, listen to Jennifer, but you don't know how. And this kind exactly. of thing is like, there's so many clues, but you're just like, they don't, they don't, they don't any- connect in your mind. So there's yeah. just like little pieces of things that are strewn about, like, you can't see the puzzle from above. <laughs> yes. And then when you can, you're just like... Like galaxy brain, like whoa, <laughs> and then also like God, God damn, this is so obvious. <laughs> I know, right? Like, do you think the writers just sat around being like, how have they not figured this out yet? Like, come on, guys. <laughs> but that's the best kind of twist, right? Where like you don't see it coming, and then when you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, this was always like so clearly the setup. Yeah, absolutely, I- because it's the same reason. That I mean, don't get me wrong, this season alone, it standalone is excellent. Mm-hmm. But the reason that it is is because they earned it. Yes, definitely. Yes. Right. The well, story and- leading up to this like makes it okay for you to do all these things mm-hmm. and makes it make sense. And it's not like they just went on some other journey of like, hey, let's just make up a new thing that's super exciting and, and compelling and action, action, action. It's like it all builds off the pieces that were already there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Yeah. I was thinking about because we always – we I feel like we're always comparing this show, like, for example, to Lost. But, you know, another show that – um, and it's not just because uh, – even though I know it wasn't intended, it was just a fun wig that they found. But Jennifer does look like Sydney Bristow. Um, alias, <laughs> she really does. And she's a she spy. Yes. She's a spy with the with the red wig from like the Alias pilot. Um, that Alias always ended with like a. But you know, before Loss did the crazy cliffhanger with with like the strings, <laughs> um, you know, strings going crazy. Alias, you know, which was J.J. Abrams. Uh, show after Felicity and before he did the pilot for the lot for Lost, um, Alias did the like the best cliffhangers on TV. And the thing is, is when now when you go back and you watch a show like Twelve Monkeys versus a show like Alias, which back then I feel like in two thousand one, two thousand two, it was 
it was such a big deal even to have a cliffhanger, like on shows like 24 on Alias. Does that make sense? Like, no, yeah, because everything was like Law and Order and ER, you know, it was like right. week to It's episodic, I mean, yeah. 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 There were like soap opera storylines involving like who was sleeping with whom or whatever, but otherwise it was like pretty much like, like, um, uh, procedural, you know, like case of the week, either medical or, or murder. Yeah, watch it, don't watch it, miss the next right. four, it doesn't matter. Like, exactly. just pick it up wherever you feel like it. Yeah. Right, right. And 2001, 24 and Alias both premiered, like, fall of 2001. And they were both shows that were different because they they gave you a cliffhanger every week and you were expected to follow along, right? And so you got kind of that, like, a- addiction to it. But Alias, clearly, when you look back on it, Every, they got to the end of every season and they were like, let's do an amazing cliffhanger. But they had no fucking idea what was going to come after. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, n- yeah. none at all. And then you would go back and you'd watch, like, the, you don't even go, like, you would never go back and rewatch it for that story because you can tell that they just came up with a cool idea for a cliffhanger and then they were going to figure out the rest later. And you contrast that with this. And now when you go back and you rewatch an episode like 401, which was always like dramatic and high stakes and oh my God, Deacon got left behind and oh my God, Lasky and Whitley are dead. Like it always had huge things. But the reason why we're still talking about it like a year after it aired is because it was so carefully planned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the the sort of like, let's do a big thing that we don't know where it's going is... Like, honestly, it's it's probably more the, the rule than the exception in TV, which is also why this is so exceptional. Like, I'm thinking about, like, like um, another show, like, that was sort of an early version of not just being sort of week to week was X-Files, which was, like, partly Monster of the Week, but then they also had this kind of, like, overarching mythology um, that they developed. And it was, like, you know, the end of each season was a kind of, like, cliffhanger or some, you know, involving the kind of, like, alien conspiracy um uh mythology but that was the same kind of thing as alias where it's like for a while or even like lost arguably i know this is like a controversial opinion depending on how what you think not 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 on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) go for it (laughs) um i should say like i have no like I, i think i actually tweeted this the other day it's like my one truly uh unpopular opinion is that I, I have no strong feelings about Lost either way. Like, I am neither like, it's the most amazing, you don't get it. Or like, ah, oh, that was fell apart, they didn't know they're doing it. I was like, whatever, that's fine. Um, so this is not out of, like, <laughs> anger about Lost. But it did sort of feel to me like X-Files, where it was sort of like, if you watch a few, for a few seasons, you think like, oh my god, this is amazing, it's all building to some, like, grand plan. And then at a certain point, you're just sort of like, oh no, this is just like a cool, like, you came up with a cool idea for this season, and then you just kept building on it. And, like, no one ever had any idea what the end, there was, like, never an end game. Like, especially in X-Files, more so than Lost. I think, like, Lost eventually they did. But X-Files is just kind of like, we're did just going to keep rolling <laughs> forever. <laughs> Arguably. I, I mean, they ended it, if that's what you mean. <laughs> they're right. Not in- and, you know, <laughs> the only thing I know is that they're not in purgatory, apparently. Um, <laughs> uh, but, like, so so X-Files had that, you know, that sort of thing where it was, like, at a certain point you're just sort of like, oh, you guys did not actually ever know where this was going it just kind of like all layered on top of each other and like that's the the nice thing about you know this show and I think also about sort of like having a show where there's where they they got to kind of like they they got to and also did end on their own terms you know it's like we're gonna wrap up this story and we're gonna like bring it all back around and make sense um 
Yeah, I will say I do think that's harder with 22 episode seasons and never really knowing when it's going to end. I mean, and you have, you know, writer's room switching out and you have people coming and going like, I get it. I mean, I get why it's harder and why there's more fluff in those long seasons and stuff. Yeah. And and when you also when you're like a giant hit on a network, you know, I think there's like a tremendous like for X-Files, there was, you know, I think long after the point when like Chris Carter was basically like bored, you know, like kind of done with the X-Files, Fox was like, fuck, no, you're not canceling our like biggest dramatic hit, you know, like exactly keep it rolling. And so I was like, okay, whatever, fine. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's just a different kind of show, but um, yeah. The other, the other thing I wanted to say uh, while I'm the subject of X-Files um, is that honestly, the, the way that I learned what an Ouroboros was, and like still to this day, my number one um, association with an Ouroboros is the episode of the X-Files where Scully gets a tattoo um, and uh, and like her tattoo starts talking to her, basically. Like the, the sort of mystery involves like this guy who has his tattoos who talk to him and make him do terrible things. And Scully. Sure. Scully. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Scully sleeps with him because like for some reason this is also a standalone episode. Like Mulder is not with her. So she's like off on her own. And so she, like, does, like, a little, like, Scully Rebellion and she gets a tattoo that also talks to her and it's, like, maybe, you know, like, some kind of uh, hallucinogenic, like, um, um, grain mold thing or maybe it's super supernatural. But the tattoo that she winds up getting uh, is an Ouroboros. Uh, Interesting. Tattoo. I think she gets, like, an Ouroboros, like, tramp stamp. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> and there's this, and I, you know, I was like 15 or 16 years old at the time when I watched this episode, and like had not yet sort of like come to terms with my bi- bisexuality enough to realize that I was obsessed with Scully, not entirely because I wanted to be her, but also because like I had a crush on her. But this is like very like, <laughs> intimate scene where she's like getting the tattoo, and it's like a close up on um, Jillian Anderson's face, and like it's clearly like she's having this like, very like erotic experience getting this tattoo, and it was like <laughs> made a huge impression on me. <laughs> Wow. I love that. So when you have an Ouroboros, normally, especially when they're talking about time, it's like the beginning and the end. But here Mm. it goes from rebellion to regret. Like that's That's the cycle. That's right. Exactly it. Exactly it. (laughs) I gotta say, Scully wore such great suits. I would not have begged her for a tramp stamp. Well, I mean, that's the thing. That's like like, the point, right? (laughs) This was the episode where she was like on her own. Like, I think she and Mulder were like fighting, you know, like she was feeling like, I'm sick of being me. I'm sick of being like trapped in this like stupid, like alien conspiracy underworld. It was her spring break. Exactly. (laughs) She like fucks a like kind of like, you know, she like fucks a a suspect and gets a tattoo and then it's all very. But it's also an Ouroboros in the sense of like she tried to break out of her, of her identity with the whole alien supernatural mm-hmm. thing and even when she went to do that she found it again yes very, <laughs> good point very true yes on this edition of the x-files podcast <laughs> <laughs> i've literally never seen a single episode and i feel like i was able to contribute to that quite well. i have a weird association like ouroboruses are sexy to me and that's why and sometimes it's awkward <laughs> 
Well, if you need, if we need to pause at any point during the podcast okay, today, Erin, just good. let us know. But uh, you know, uh, like, like Jennifer in that wig and like her skin tight leather suit and all those mm-hmm. horses. I'm just saying it was a lot for me. <laughs> yeah, Jennifer looks pretty hot in this episode. Um, so one thing I was thinking about, I mean, one of the circles or Boruses is this episode takes us back to the beginning of this story or earlier in the story in a lot of different ways. Um, You know, obviously, we've got the big reveal at the end of the episode that we're back in 2043, and we're seeing um, Colin Ramsey walking toward the CDC to get the watch. Um, And that takes us like back to the pilot. Um, It takes us back to the time of the plague with Jennifer in 2018, where we see people in plague masks again, reminds us of how this story all started. Um, We, we, it takes us to a different version of the Emerson hotel, right? Like we've going, Emerson hotel was first introduced at the beginning of season two. We've been in these ruins before at the beginning of season three. Now we're back here, right? Like all of these, um, you know, and Cassie keeps saying we're stuck in a circle, but even this episode entitled The End, the final bit of dialogue is we're back at the beginning, but in all different ways, the places and that they're taking us to reminding us of like how we started this whole story to begin with. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any sort of other thoughts sort of about the circular storytelling? I mean, in some ways, even with the characters, they're taking us back to like Cole is the hopeful one again. Um, Jones is kind of thinking back on all of the deeds that she's done. You know, it's not just time loops, but it's also like these character arcs and the journeys that they've taken these characters on and thinking back to how they began and what they've done along the way. Um, there's just so many circles. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think um, I hadn't thought about it until you were talking, but the, the fact that, um, Cole and Hannah see Cole and Ramsey sort of talking about the watch. The fact that the watch is the watch is what closes the loop, um, like the whole big loop of this of this entire sort of like time loop before it's undone, right? Like the last thing that has to happen is that Cole has to give Cassie the watch back so she can have it at the sea. So like that's kind of like that is the end in the beginning. It's the beginning because that's, you know, the beginning was when Cole and Ramsey went to get the watch and it's the end because that's the last thing that has to happen in order to to kind of like close the causality loop. Yeah, I mean, you've got, I mean, a watch itself is a circle and a circle mm. is such a common symbol for how we mark time, right? Like even like, you know, a watch, clocks, um, and also just sort of, you know, Olivia in her own way talks about it's the beginning of a new cycle. A cycle suggests a circle, right? And life, death, rebirth. The Red Forest is – the dream of the Red Forest is trying to break that that circle. Um, so, yeah, there's just so – I mean, it's just interesting the way they – you know, the story has so many circles in it, both thematically and then more obviously with – time loops and all of the different loops that exist within the bigger loop. Um, But also that it's just such a rich metaphor for how humans have kind of always thought about time, right? Like they chose a symbol of Ouroboros that, that cultures throughout human history have associated with the cycle of life and death or sort of the passage of time. 
it's just ri- it's just so rich. Like mm-hmm. I know we could go on and on talking about it, but it's like there's a lot of damn circles <laughs> in this story. In summary, um, did you guys have any other big picture stuff before we jump to medieval times? I don't think uh, so. This is not so much big picture, but it just needs to be said. And I know we'll get to it later, but it bears repeating even before it's said. Like, can we just friggin' pour one out for Lasky? Oh, <laughs> that Lasky. poor man is like, he is constantly getting like screwed and dying. Like, he died just... once before, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He died before the reset. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's like un- so unceremonious too that he just gets like a bullet to the head when they, you know, it's like, oh, poor Lasky. Later, Lasky. I know, I know. At least, at least Cole remembered him at the end of this episode right. <laughs> when he listed everyone. Oh, you mean you've never watched a show where they start listing off people who died and they forget half the characters? Weird. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that happens sometimes. Um, all right. So I don't know about you guys, but I remember when my husband and I pressed play on 401 and it was in medieval times, we actually paused and we're like, did we press play on the wrong show? <laughs> because we were like, wait, is this some other, like, right? Like, and then you see like, you know, Master Aemon from Game of Thrones, <laughs> who's the alpha primary. And we were like, what? Like, it is such a like bold, like, yeah, we're going back to fucking medieval times, guys. <laughs> like, it's such a bold way to start this season. And then it's like they started season two as well, though. Like, there's a very much with the um with the narration, there's very much a Lord of the Rings feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, it just I just like it just looked like the BBC Robin Hood to me, <laughs> <laughs> which holds many fond and not so fond memories for Aaron and for Indeed. me. <laughs> <laughs> Next Any- time I request the Disney Robin Hood be integrated, please. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Any t- time there are like people in armor and horses and like. I just am like, yes, <laughs> I'm, so ex- <laughs> I'm so excited. And then like when it ends with like, basically it's it's like primaries, like you know, they're being accused of being witches and warlocks. And I'm like, yes, that's amazing. Give me more of that. <laughs> and then they're like, they freaking light themselves on fire. Like they are so hardcore, these primaries. <laughs> like, I mean, it's all just such a great setup. You know, they don't, there's no explanation for it. We're not going to realize what it is until demons, right? And then you end with, you know, we see our season four MacGuffin, right? It's it's the Ouroboros. And we've got chorus saying, James Cole. And then they cue the 12 Monkeys music and you're like, why did some chick in medieval times know James Cole's name? (laughs) What is happening? It's just such a swing for the fences opening that like, you know, now we know they're going to take us like freaking all over the place with time travel, but it was so bold and so fun. Like just as like screams adventure. I love it. (laughs) I thought that it was interesting um, because we haven't heard of the weapon yet, right? Mm, This is the first time. Correct. That we get that. And it was interesting if you look back across, you know, the whole series, especially like you said, referencing to demons later, because that's where it connects to the storyline, how, you know, he asks like for the weapon and the dude's like, you you don't know anything, do you? <laughs> like, you have no idea what you're even asking me for. Right. And the Ouroboros, I mean, for the audience, the Ouroboros itself, that chorus is holding, has the note that will take the team back to this moment 
<laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So like we're beginning the season in this time and place in medieval times, but the note that she's holding is to bring James Cole right there. Um so yeah, it's like in Demons, we're going to go back around to where we began the season in 401. Well, you know, I when you just... think of the oddity, though, like the, they want to utilize it as a weapon, like, you know, Team Olivia. But if they were to actually use it, it makes the other team win. Yeah, <laughs> like, She can't destroy point. time if she undoes the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, right. That's yeah. where I kind of saw it, too. Like, mm, you don't really know what you're asking me for, do you? Like, you don't even get how this works. <laughs> Right. I have just one thing to say about that scene, which is that the only way that Master Eamon or whatever his actual name is could have been more of a badass in that moment is if he'd had like a giant stew pot on the fire and just like crawled inside of it with (laughs) celery and carrots and was like, make me a motherfucking stew. Bring it. (laughs) I would have liked to have seen him light himself. Yeah, that would have been pretty beast. He's like, "Bitch, I have oil. Someone hand me my." (laughs) Or just like they had like a fire, right? They had like they were all standing around a fire. Like what? He just walks right into it. (laughs) Yeah, or just like just like trust fall like straight into the (laughs) bunk. That would have been awesome. Wow, that's a that's a really different kind of trust. And then you're like, "Damn it, Stuart!" Because the dude doesn't catch him. Like it was. Man, guys, you're, you've got really dark. <laughs> this, is the, this is the last time we have team building exercises. <laughs> oh my god! Um, all right, that takes us, <laughs> Master Amen, cooking in a big stew. Um, <laughs> that takes us to um, we. Ca- I mean, it is crazy that this is moments after the season three finale. For these characters. So you have Cassie sitting, standing in front of a Jones who not even a few hours ago shot her son. Um, and then Cassie got her son back a few moments later only to have to say goodbye to him all over again. So basically she like had to experience the death of her son twice. And now the woman who shot her despite Cassie begging her mother to mother, please don't do this, is dying. And the only doctor in the room is Cassie. Tell me your thoughts about (laughs) this scene is a lot. Um, Because also, like, one of the things that when Megan um, Goeswine has been on the podcast, she's kind of outlined how Cassie, Hannah, and Jones are kind of their own circle of motherhood, right? Like, with Jones and Cassie were together the day Jones decided to keep Hannah. Cassie is the one who saved Hannah. We don't know yet that Hannah is Cole's mother. And now the daughter she saved is asking Cassie to save the mother who killed Cassie's son. It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Like, all I can think, given this week, is like, what an awkward fucking Thanksgiving. (laughs) 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 I can't beat that, okay? I can't. Yeah. Oh, I do like I do like to think of the Jones family having Thanksgiving somewhere, like at the House of Cedar and Pine <laughs> in 2019. <laughs> uh, but hopefully this won't come up. <laughs> so, you know, do you guys have sort of any like, you know, Hannah is begging her and it is really, you know, Hannah's like, she it, I'm sorry about Ethan. She'd be sorry, too. And Cassie's like, would she? Yeah. Which is fair. I mean, like knowing mm-hmm. Jones. That's a, that's a completely fair thing to say. Like, I think the Jones that we've known for most of the show probably wouldn't be sorry. 
Um, and the difference is, I think that this is this new Jones. I think is is a little is going to be sorry or is sorry. You know, is starting to what that means. But well, and isn't sorry tied to the results? Yeah. I mean, if she yeah. were right, it would have been fine. But when they found out it was Olivia all the time and she was like wrong in every way, then oops, now I'm sorry. Yeah. That's like a good I think point. that does matter. It's tied yeah. to like how it turned out. Yeah. No, it's true. She wouldn't have been sorry if it had worked. Uh. Yeah. So you know, and I think. Yeah, I don't know. So I, I, I kind of I get Cassie in that moment. You know, like it's a lot to ask her to save the life of Jones in that in that situation. Um, and as painful it is to watch her hesitation, you know, like as much as you kind of want to like reach through the screen and be like, just just do it. I completely understand why it's hard for her to bring herself to be a doctor in that moment rather than be a mother. Right. Yeah, I think yeah. that was important for her character development, too, not oh, to yeah, just yeah. brush over it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it's showing that these losses are really beginning to take a toll um, mm-hmm. on Cassie, which is, you know, uh, what so much of her journey is about this season. Um, and I also think it's interesting the way that it's kind of framed where Cassie is almost putting herself as like a bystander. You know, when, when Hannah's like, you know, what do you, you have to do something to save her. And Cassie's like, you know, it's, it's our, the wound's already too deep. Like there's nothing I can do. Right. Like fate has already determined that Jones is going to die. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of like, she's, she's trying to remain like a, like a bystander and that, and being kind of fatalistic about it so that she doesn't have to act. Um, and then, you know, it's obviously, you know, they definitely stretch it out with the flatlining and making you like that's what actually pushes her to do something. But what I think is interesting in this episode is like the last one and so much of what we've talked about, how someone choosing to save someone then results in in, a, in positive things happening and more people being saved. So mm-hmm. like Ethan, like Jennifer saving Ethan and then Ethan saving all of them, mm-hmm. Cassie swallowing all of her personal feelings and choosing to save Jones is what results in all of them being saved mm-hmm. because Jones is then able to carry out Project Karen and they're able to get away. And if so, if Cassie hadn't made this choice here at the beginning of this episode, they all would have died. Yeah. So it's kind of always like a ripple effect. Like you choose to save someone, good things happen. Life begets life. Yeah. It's like the other psych, one of the other circles yeah. um, on the show. Yeah. Also, also, can we just recognize how Jones, even as she is like literally dying in agony on that table – always has her eyes on the motherfucking prize. Like, everyone around her is like, oh, she's gonna die, she's gonna die, please save my mother, please, please. And she's just like, Project Karen! <laughs> <laughs> yes! Shut the Stop fuck up, dilly-dallying around, you assholes! <laughs> Stop dying talking about feelings! Project Karen! <laughs> right, and she's Oh, she is such a badass moment later on in this episode. Wow. Um, So that takes us to the Cassie and Cole, um, sort of the first one-on-one conversation they have in the episode. Um, Again, I think it's important that they make time for the two of them to have a conversation, right? Like their son died. So even in the midst of this crazy battle and, you know, the Death Star is coming, um, they still let them talk. I guess I was struck by how these, you know, we've talked before how Cassie and Cole, they begin each season in sort of different 
points of view when it comes to to hope or sort of cynicism, fatalism, however you want to characterize it. Um, you know, and in season two, it was Cole who was the one save the one and Cassie kind of <clears throat> taking sort of the more cynical like view of things. In season three, it was Cole who was the more cynical one and, and kind of losing hope. And Cassie was the one who believed in Ethan. And now it seems like they've switched positions again. Did you guys have any sort of big picture thoughts about this conversation? Well, I think it's interesting that, um, you know, it, it kind of makes sense in that, like, for Cassie, the thing that was driving her in season three to to save Ethan at all costs, you know, and that was, like, putting her at odds with Cole all along is just this kind of, like, really almost primal sort of, like, love and need for her child, right? Like, that this belief that no matter what, you know, like, no matter what happened to this little boy in intervening years, the things that he's been made to do or believe that he is always at heart her her baby, her child, you know, who deserves saving that kind of, like, really, really sort of very, very, like, deep primal connection she felt to him that drove her so much to save him – um, you know, that like given having lost him, like whatever that, that him dying, that her not being able to like save him completely as in like remove him from danger and like have him with her would kind of drive her to despair, you know, like it's a, it's such a total loss for her. Whereas Cole, you know, he kind of had to come around you know he had to like see his son and look at his eyes and and learn more about him you know and like learn i think to understand him a little bit more but like it seems like ethan to cole always yeah i mean so much of it was i i think i i I almost i feel like i don't want to put words in your mouth but i feel like i know what you're getting at like so much of cole's feelings about ethan were also tied up in his feelings about himself yeah and his self-worth so when he articulates we saved who he was. Yeah. That's so tied up with Cole, right? Cole's whole journey of, yes. of yeah. And looking at himself and, and sort of like learning to, learning to sort of imagine that there might be an outcome for himself that isn't just, you know, like being erased, ironically, <laughs> or, <laughs> um, or, or like some, you know, like, so, cause the early seasons, he was always, he was always kind of fatalistic. Like the, the way that this works is that like, if this works, I, this me disappears, it's gone forever. And obviously like he thought it would just like reset him to being a little boy, you know, and growing up normally. But there was always a kind of sense of like, I'm doing this to kind of reset things. And, and in a way the redemption he was going to get was to erase this him, the Cole who had done all these things that he'd done that he kind of can't forgive himself for. And I think we get a little bit of a nod to that, you know, in that in that snatch of conversation that we hear between him and Ramsey when he says something like, you know, oh, this is about saving my soul, right? You know, it's kind of a reminder, like, where this started out was with Cole trying to save his soul, Ramsey trying to save his, his soul, and Cole kind of thinking, like, the way that I save my soul is to, like, reset this to a world where I didn't, where I hadn't sacrifice my soul already Mm -hmm. and so yeah i think you're right so i think like looking at ethan his sort of like cynicism came from that sort of feeling of like it's already too late just like it was kind of already too late for me and then it kind of came around to believing like no actually like there's always a chance there's still always a chance to kind of step in and and redeem him you know and and yeah so it's sort of like ethan was his son, and he loved him as a son, but also as like Ethan was always more what what Ethan represented to him, mm-hmm. and so so 
the fact that he died, you know, honorably, honorably, yeah. The fact that he was sort of like we 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 helped sort of like give everything that happened in his life some kind of like meaning and a good end, and like he, you know, he died being someone he wanted to be, not someone that he was sort of like forced this monster he was forced into being by um, the army of the twelve monkeys, like that kind of. Not to say that Cole is, like, not grieving, you know, like, not, not like, feeling the loss of his son. But I think he feels, like, that's why he feels like it has meaning. Whereas for Cassie, I think it does make sense that for her, that doesn't matter because she always just wanted her baby back, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think there's some interesting um, – it both the, – the next piece of it is, like, basically, like, what do we do next? Yeah. And what Cassie is saying, which is kind of her – you know, she mentioned it in the middle of season three, but but it's going to be sort of really hitting her. I've already lost my son. This mission, even if we win, even before she knows he's going to be erased, they can't be together, mm-hmm. right? Because he'll be a little boy. Mm-hmm. And so this this conversation, you know, when he says the last time we gave up was fifty seven, and the storms t- still came. So Cole, what Cole is focused on is the future will find us. It always does, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't stop. You can't stop the passage of time. There, there's always like you can try and it is it, really interesting. So like if you think back to that conversation they were having at the House of Cedar and Pine at the end of season two, where Cole was the one who had given up and Cassie was the one who was like, "But what about the mission?" Right? Like, mm-hmm. and now you have Cassie saying. That was the best moment of my life. Maybe now needs to be enough. Ah, like, and you think about the Red Forest, right? But also, so it's a temptation of the Red Forest. Like, she has tears in her eyes. It's in this moment of grief that happy memory. It's almost heightened because of the pain she's feeling now, right? And that's just going to be exacerbated as the season goes on and ultimately finding out what's going to happen to Cole, right? So it's like wonderful foreshadowing for that ultimate like test that's going to be on the balcony. But it's also a really interesting inversion of what Cole's going to tell her, you know, about living in the now versus worrying about what's going to come, you know, like, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of flipping the like, I don't know the right way to articulate it. Like, ultimately, what the show's going to be telling us is now needs to be enough. Right. <laughs> but Cassie's talking about it in kind of e- maybe eternal now. Mm. Right. Um, so I just thought that it was, there's so many different like themes you can kind of pull out of that exchange that they have. All right. So we mentioned this takes us to Project Karen. Um, I, this is such, oh, it makes me so excited. It's like such great storytelling. They were giving us these hints with just a kind of offhand conversation between in season three between Jones and Lasky. Remember when they were measuring things? Mm-hmm. And Deacon was like, what's Project Karen? And he was like, I know my Greek mythology. That was the ferryman that takes you across the river Styx. Um, and so much like now we're going to get the payoff um, for this moment. And what I think is interesting is we saw Raritan destroyed – in 304 but we don't we didn't understand it's funny because it, it we've all we've already seen this project be successful but when olivia turns kind of the beams on the facility it could go either way right like we've seen a result 
that the but th- that the facility looks like it's destroyed, we don't actually know what that means. And mm-hmm. so like what we've already seen kind of sets the stakes, even though we don't understand what we've seen, right? That that it moved out from under um, that rubble and it's somewhere else. And it's right, because okay. technically everybody could be dead. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, was, and actually it's it's also like a, a perfect little bit, like it's it works out perfectly because um, Olivia also believes that she's succeeded. Like Olivia right. believes that that's what happened. Yeah. Um, I love that they use Sam's model to explain it. Yeah. Oh, his model, like, back from season two. Um, and then um, we get, like, I, there's some great kind of, like, wow, look how far we've come moments. Like, watching Cole and Deacon fighting side by side to defend against an invasion of Raritan when in season one, it, two different times it was Deacon who was the one attacking is pretty great. <laughs> It's like, oh, oh, look how far we've come. Um, and then we lose um, we lose Lasky. And yes, we'll pour one out for poor Lasky. <laughs> um, and I personally love battle couple casserole. Like, it's pretty hot. <laughs> and I don't the mean to say it. When Cassie, like, jumps on the guy and spins him around and, like, uses him as, like, a merry-go-round to shoot people. Yeah, that's oh, wild. fucking awesome. It's pretty fucking awesome. All in her amazing leather jacket, right? Yes. Like, I just, you know, a couple that can lay waste to bad guys together is really my thing. <laughs> I felt like that was a level of martial arts that Cassie, like, would not know, and I did not care. Yes, yes. <laughs> nah. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um that takes us to the most as badass as casserole are they do not match jones who has a fucking life-threatening stab wound i think shooting herself up is she like shooting herself up with adrenaline yeah it's so the adrenaline it's the adrenaline yeah, picking up a gun to go fucking do science in the middle of a battle is like the only thing that could have completed it is if she had had a cigarette hanging out of her mouth <laughs> well, that's part of it was when she was like walking down the hall and she just casually like lifts up the gun and shoots the guy who's running towards her oh, oh my god yes <laughs> Like, I, mean, I am so over this. I don't have time for your nonsense. <laughs> There's something about Jones with a gun, right? Because in season two, when she had the shotgun and the cigarette oh, hanging yeah, out of her mouth. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. Um, what is not great is the next scenes that we have to talk about with Whitley. Ah, uh, I cry. Every time, every time I've watched this episode, I cry when Whitley dies. Every time. I think it's the death. I think it's the death that made me cry the most besides Deacon's, I think. It's like so – because like he's gone through so much, you know. Like he gave up everything because he believed in Jones and – and, you know, I think he goes out there basically, like, knowing he's – well, uh, yeah, knowing that he's mm-hmm. going to die, like, knowing that he's going to be overwhelmed. And then she comes out and he says, was it enough, you know? Oh. And, like, he only lets himself die when she says that it was. Also, the fact that they both got stabbed in the stomach. Like, they have, like, these matching wounds and they're sitting there together. Yeah. Like, I just – it breaks my heart. The shot – and the thing is, I mean, she says it was enough, like – was it enough? There, there's so much significance to that yeah. because Whitley has sacrificed so much for her. Yeah. And the thing, the thing that, like, I don't want to make you more upset, Aaron, 
Sorry. I, but I went ahead and I rewatched the scene in Ouroboros when Jones gets to see him again. Ooh. And it's 2043. And what she says to him is, I know I may never say it, but I'm so grateful for all the things that you've done and all the things that you will do. And so the Whitley that went out to face all those people and the Whitley who's dying next to her, holding her hand, saying, was it enough? Jones hasn't said those words yet for her, but for him, she had already expressed her gratitude for Mm -hmm. everything, right? And so – uh, like, you know, like Jones doesn't get to say what he means to her in that moment. But for him, she already had told him that years ago. And I think it is, so, again, to go back to what we were talking about with Jones before and kind of like the the big the beginning of her sort of final character arc. I think it's also so significant that she is now pausing, you know, like all these people that she sort of demanded sacrifice themselves for mm. her either directly or like or didn't tell them that it was you know like all the, the all those people who died in the machine before she found Cole mm-hmm. um that that she just for so long kind of like you know put her blinkers on and said like this is what's necessary to save seven billion people like none of this is real you know like it's all gonna reset you know kind of just like refused to recognize the significance of those <laughs> sacrifices I think it's so huge now for her to pause and have this moment and look at someone who has made all, you know, like sacrifices for her over and over and over and over again. And in some ways made the greatest sacrifices, um, mm-hmm. you know, especially with the men- – when they mentioned kind of like bring up her spearhead later, um, to look at him and sort of like recognize that both for him and for herself, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of have a moment of looking around and saying like and, – and realizing like I – I am here doing what I'm doing on the sort of based on the the generosity of all these people. And this is one of them. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's a Jones of season one would not have been able to do that. Right. Even for Whitley. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's it's also interesting when you look in the context, like, I mean, this episode's called the end, obviously. And the end of season four, you know, or the finale is called the beginning. And so there's this kind of like inherent loop within season four itself, you know, to say like, this is like one cluster of of episodes that goes together. But at the same time, I think if you look at it, like this episode is a lot of ends to what's gone on in the whole series up to this Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. Yeah. And one of those is that Whitley was there with her from the very beginning. He's there, you know, at the beginning of the facility and this facility in and of itself ends today. That's true, yeah. And he yeah. goes out with it. Like, yeah. it just, a lot of the pieces that had been in place, like, up till this point in the show, everything is just, like, stripped away and they have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was with her before Cole. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. 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 And always at Raritan, you're right, Beep. Like, that's the mm-hmm. facility that he's always been protecting. Ah, oh, that's beautiful, Beep. Yeah. And yeah. he saved it. Mm-hmm. He did. It's a but it's also like a, gone. That's yeah. the end of it. It's not the same thing anymore. It's like a captain going down with his ship, you know, to make sure mm-hmm. that everybody else gets out on the lifeboats. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then he says in the next episode, it's my job. It's my job to protect you in this facility. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. like, so, yeah. Oh, that's, well, you just made us even more sad, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Do not try to up me on the uh, feelings bombs. <laughs> you don't want to compete with this. <laughs> you are the feels Death Star. Um, <laughs> there is 
a thing that there's a moment when Hannah says, where is mother? And I thought that that was significant because that's what Hannah used to call Jennifer. Mm-hmm. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. So she's calling out for her real mother. I also cackled because the whole mystery is who's Cole's mother. And you have <laughs> Hannah be like, where's mother? It's like, it's me, assholes. You just haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, it was a riddle, not a question. Uh, Come on, guys. <laughs> Um, all right, that, speaking of feeling sad, tell me, (laughs) tell me your feelings about Deacon watching Cassie on the other side of the beam with Cole pulling her away, being left behind. Man, I just, poor Deacon, like, just getting fucked over left and right his whole life. And you can see that, like, written on his face, you know, like, that's when he says, like, don't leave me, don't leave me, you know, like, this is so quietly the second time, which is like, you know, like, and like, like a little boy who says it, but knows that, that the person leaving him won't listen, you know, like, this is like a man who's been abandoned so many times in so many ways that he doesn't actually expect that he won't be abandoned again. And it fucking breaks my heart. <laughs> and then um, I don't know you forget about me plays in my head. Uh, oh, damn it, Aaron. <laughs> I did. It played while I was like grocery shopping last Friday and it started playing in the aisle again. And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, had a, I have a friend who was uh, – a couple of my friends were, were watching 12 Monkeys uh, recently, Shosh and Britt. Um, they weren't like tweeting about it or anything, but they – but they had been watching it and uh, they got to demons and I didn't even realize they had gotten there until my friend Britt just sent me a message. She's like, I have to know, does, is Deacon really dead? And I was like, well, where are you? And she's like, when demons, when it gets his head cut off. And I was like, well, that's a complicated question uh, that I don't really know how to answer in this show. <laughs> but like, I was like, why, why are you asking? Cause I wasn't really sure. And she's like, I'm just like, I just love Deacon, uh, Deacon so much. I was really upset. And I was like, Feel you, honey. Every time something bad happens to Deacon in season four, I'm always like so upset. And then also I remember in season one when I hated him so much and I'm just like, you know, that that uh, that video of Paul Rudd being like, here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Who would have thought? Not me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That pretty much sums up the, the audience ride with Deacon, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, like – and Cassie, Cassie's sort of like being pulled away by Cole and, and you know, looking at him. So just, that's one of those moments where it's like, I will always, a little part of me will always ship Cassie and Deacon because like, you know, like they clearly just mean so much to each other. And, uh, and yeah. The thing, so the thing that's brilliant about it, right, is that the first time you watch it and you have the like, no, we can't leave him and Cole pulling her away, we already have, which is but it's like Cole, that's true. Yeah. But like, man, you really rub salt in the wound there. Right. Like, yeah, right. but like, but here's wrong, he, here's but the also thing. Like, dick move, buddy. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you could have said sorry, man. Like, but but here's the thing. That moment you think is like. I mean, first of all, maybe we think. I mean, you probably are thinking Deacon is an like you know that there's got to be more to it because a yeah, character yeah, yeah. like that isn't gonna. There's that's not how you're gonna tie up a character yeah, like yeah. that. Their story, but yeah, no is, body, no death. It's not like exactly. he's gone yeah. exactly. And you don't but see it, him die or anything. Like he's just they run away and then right. Yeah. yeah. But so what's brilliant about it is it is the perfect setup 
to thinking that that is going to be the final straw to turn Deacon, Mm -hmm. right? To actually work with Olivia. Because if you're going to talk about something rubbing salt in the wound, that he went and this team that he has constantly since season three been worried, he's not on the word of the witness, he doesn't feel appreciated, he wonders what his place is, and that he's the one that's left behind, it like sets up the ultimate test for his character, Mm -hmm. right? And that kind of goodbye with the man who Cassie chose over him hauling her away is the perfect setup for you to think that Deacon's going to break bad. Mm -hmm. However, I think it's actually pivotal that he saw how upset she was. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Cassie shot him not that long ago, right? They were had been at odds with one another. When he I actually think it's unbelievably important that he sees that emotion and he sees that even though there was nothing she could do, how much he means to her. That is one of those like things that he takes with him because like as much as we think this is setting Deacon up to break bad, this is actually like the greatest test for how much his character has grown that he walks away from this moment and never betrays them. Mm-hmm. And he's still on their side. Um, so it's so like, it's like heartbreaking, but it also, you're just like, man, like a Deacon who can walk away from that and not turn his back on them. Um, is a deacon that has really, really changed and grown over the course of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's meaningful in several ways. I feel like on Cassie's end, it is a direct correlation or inverse correlation, if you will, of what she was just saying about like, you know, we saved Ethan's soul, but I'm losing mine. And it's mm-hmm. like a demonstration that no, like you're not. You might mm-hmm. feel like that, you know, but when push comes to shove, like you still care about people, things still matter to you. Mm-hmm. And on his end, though, it was interesting because... You're absolutely correct on, you know, this moment kind of being like it for him. But at the same time, I actually read this episode differently this time. And it came from when he went out to, you know, with the hammer and like that whole thing. And he was the one that came up with the idea to kind of save them. What it did for me is harken back to the point where um, Olivia specifically told him in season three that some parts were interchangeable. And I feel Mm -hmm. like he has such this, like, fire in him, even outside of, like, other people accepting her or not. He has such this fire in him to prove her wrong. Like, I am not disposable. Mm. Yeah. And so I just kind of read it differently this time. And it's not, like, obviously the way you read it is is meant to be there. But it's just something I saw this time that I did not see, you know, on watching it originally. And being left behind again and again and again, right? This is also the deacon that was left behind at Titan. He's in his own loop. He's going to be fucking stuck back there again, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, And so it's the ultimate, you know, for someone who wants to prove he's not interchangeable, it's the ultimate, like, I am, fuck, I am left here again and back at Titan and left behind, right? It would be... If you want to prove that you are not interchangeable, it's the greatest call to action, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> to prove I mean, that you're he not. wants a showdown with her. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. is, like, so deep in him at this point. Like, you know what I mean? Everybody has, obviously, a reason to be mad at Olivia, and we can point to all that. But I feel like with everything she's put him through personally, like you said, especially being in and out of Titan the whole time and him being around all that and him being kind of duped and stuff, like, he's not having it. Yeah. And I think also the, the the being told by her, like, well, you know, you're interchangeable. You don't really matter. You're just like a generic piece of shit, you know, like, 
it sounds like his dad, you know, like that's mm-hmm. what he's been yeah. told his whole life that you just that you that you don't matter that you're just like some meaningless piece of shit, you know, like that's all you're going to be. And so this is his way to kind of like be like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm going to save the world, or right? Like at least be a piece of it. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is the sad, there's a both a heartbreaking, but I think also kind of you know, and I think it may be stretching it a little bit, but, you know, his song is Don't You Forget About Me, right? This moment is being left behind, right? Like, he's saying over the walkie-talkie, like, don't you assholes leave me behind, mm-hmm. right? Like, don't – literally, don't forget about me as you're splintering <laughs> this facility away because I'm the one that went out behind, behind um, enemy lines and bought us the time to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Cassie ran out after him. You know, she didn't forget him. When she sees that they're splintering away, you see the look on her face when they're in the control room because she knows that Deacon isn't back yet Mm -hmm. and runs after him. And so, yeah, there's, you know, the moment has so many layers to it on how it is both kind of this tragic, possible, like, affirmation of what his deepest insecurities are, and yet he is going to rise above it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like... Oh, Deacon. He's the best. I love him so much. <laughs> did, did either of you guys find the contrast between Cassie and Cole a little bit jarring? She was, like, I felt like he showed no empathy whatsoever. And it's not that I can't understand that, but it was just a little bit jarring to me that she was like, I care so much about this. And part, I get it. He is in mission mode now. There's a lot going on, whatever. But he was just kind of like, yeah, we got to go. I mean, he's... Cole is, uh, I mean, I, th- I it makes sense to me character-wise. And Cole and Deacon have a much more fraught and complicated and antagonistic relationship. So I think that coupled with knowing it is what it is and, you know, like be- being in mission mode, there's literally nothing they can do. Um, yeah, maybe it goes back then to just what you were saying about how about the way he responded to Cassie about it? You know what I mean? Even if you can appreciate like that he doesn't care as much or has a, a, that um, different relationship with Deacon, like he was just kind of like, like you said, you know, okay, well, we already have, like, we got to go. Mm-hmm. I think it was, was a strange that- way to respond to her. The way that I read it was that he, in that moment, was wo- mostly worried that Cassie's concern for Deacon was going to put her in danger. So, like, basically, like, she was going to get hurt or killed because she was pointlessly. Yeah. Pointlessly because she was like trying to figure out a way to save somebody who they could not possibly save. So I kind of read it Mm -hmm. as he was just like, he was worried about Cassie and wasn't really thinking about Deacon at all, which is like, you know, basically like, yeah, it's kind of, Kind of shitty, kind of callous, but I don't even think it was like a calculation. Like, I don't really like that guy, so fuck him. I think it was just sort of like, <laughs> danger, grab, go now. Yeah, and I think also, so the, another way, like, and this obviously is like more kind of stepping back, but the emotional center of that scene is between Deacon and Cassie. Mm-hmm. And later in the episode, when everyone's giving up, is kind of Cole's moment, the way he delivers, you know, Deacon. You know, Ethan, like he's listing the dead um, or who they believe are dead. Um, That's kind of Cole's moment to show that kind of emotion. This particular scene is about Cassie and Deacon. So, you know, maybe that's also why they sort of have a contrast there. So that takes us to Jones's monologue. And we're watching them sort of piece the facility back together. Um, 
And her monologue, I, I guess I had never listened to it very carefully until rewatching this time. It's a really interesting um, kind of inversion of the classic Where Are You Right Now monologue that we've heard so often throughout the show. And you know, it's kind of a meditation on the passage of time and mortality and the the acts that we take during our lives and how that changes who we are and whether you're whether you like who you become. Um, you know, the where are you right now is like thinking about the time of your death. So I just wanted to read the monologue really quickly and then get all y'all's thoughts on it. Um, because it's also really interesting how it takes the central premise of the show time travel and kind of turns this on its head. So what Jones says is all living things can travel through time. It's simple, really. Just wait a moment, then another and another. And often enough, you'll arrive at tomorrow and then you'll be dead. At the very end, you'll ask yourself, where am I right now? And what have I done? You will have grown old, hoped and let go of hope tried and failed, shaped by time until you are that which you do not wish to be. You may have someone you loved and all of the horrible things that you've done for them until you lose the very last thing you have left yourself. There's a lot there. <laughs> this you guys have- through, it made me think of um, Cassie, the sort of uh, until you become that which you did not want to be um, or wish to be. I, I thought of Cassie and that sort of that really awful revelation that she had about herself at the beginning of the episode, which is basically like, I have become a person who will let someone bleed out on the table in front of me uh, or want to, you know, and come close mm-hmm. to to doing it. Um, and sort of all the things that have happened to her and that she's gained and then lost that have, have led her to this moment of being in such a deep, place of anger and despair that she could, you know, look at someone that she knew very well and had a relationship with and look in the eyes of her daughter who's begging for her life and consider not doing everything she could to save her. Yeah. I mean, you can, I mean, you can think of a lot of the different characters on this Mm -hmm. show um, and all of the things that these stakes have forced them to do. Um, In some ways it also functions as a biography of Cole for the series. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, yeah. until you lose the very last thing you have yourself, <laughs> yep. which literally happens to him. <laughs> right. <laughs> he also said that in the pilot. That was in his original monologue. Oh, yeah. 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 So but, like, but it, it's a metaphor, but it's not. <laughs> no. You, well, yeah. And, you know, it is. It, it, you talk about the, you know, the name of the episode is the end and the beginning. And mm-hmm. they're bringing us back to the opening words of this story. Mm-hmm. But they hit you in a really different way, right? I mean, that one was turned outward to the audience, right? Um, and this one, it, it, it also, I think, is very much speaking to this point in Jones's journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and thinking back, you know, as she sat next to Whitley and everything that she had done side by side with him to get to this point, right? Yeah. Like a coup and spearhead and all, all of it, right? Um, yeah, it's really, you know, it, it kind of speaks to the sort of, you know, we're going to get to sort of the, at the end of the, uh, at the end of the pod, sort of the different Ouroboros um, symbolism throughout different cultures. But one of them actually has to do with psychology um, and tied to Jung. Am I pronouncing that right? I think so, yeah. Um, and human consciousness 
and sort of how we view ourselves and are we improving upon ourselves um, and thinking about ourselves as as sort of like a, a, a work in progress um, and, and trying to improve upon ourselves and where do we end up and how human beings are kind of unique in terms of a species is even sort of thinking about that. Um, and so there's sort of like this, you know, thinking about a circle as inevitable. Um, you know, there's a voiceover later in the episode when Jennifer's in the museum about how psychologists view uh, the Ouroboros versus how um, like alchemists have viewed it or ancient cultures viewed it as what it's symbolism of, but whether it's symbolic of fate um, or fatalism, destiny, right? Like Jones sounds pretty, um, you know, this is a little bit... Like, you're going to make a series of decisions and someday you're going to die and you're not going to like who you've become. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Like, it's – I don't know. Like, well, I mean, hey, having someone that, you know, that was an ally and a friend stand over you and consider not saving your life will make you stop and yeah. think about the choices that you've made and, and the kind and the person <laughs> that you've become. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's so – I think one of the reasons why this story means so much to us is because this may be sort of a nadir for some of these characters, but ultimately they're going to make different choices, right? Mm -hmm. Choose to save one another and choose hopefulness and choose love and relationships with other people. Um, But it's kind of an interesting – it's kind of a different take on the Ouroboros and the show referenced, you know, in the museum voiceover psychology. And so it's kind of just another circle, right? Mm -hmm. Like – um, just in terms of like human beings and our consciousness and, and how do we view ourselves and the sum to- are we that's are we the sum total of our acts? Um, can we rise above what we've done? Sort of all those questions that this show's been playing with all along. Um, I uh, sort of the the scenes that are after the battle. I absolutely love the Emerson Hotel in 2043. It's like this beautiful decay. <laughs> and I know that that sounds like those like those two words are a juxtaposition, um, but sort of the wonder on Cassie and Cole's face when they open those elevator doors, um, and Cole has definitely seen it before, right? Like it uh, when Future Asshole told him there's a beginning and an end, and he knew that Future Asshole was from the future, and now he is in this place where he met that future version of himself, that moment's going to hit him a little bit differently than it's going to hit anybody else, right? Like, he's been there before. Yeah. Well, and he knows. I mean, like, in some ways, like, Cole has something that nobody else has at this point, which is that he knows there's a future for him because he knows there's a Future Asshole who's, like, bopping around in the uh, the – Splinter suit. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, like, Cassie right. doesn't know that that moment is coming. Or she, I guess Cole has told her about it, but, like, she hasn't experienced it. Right. Even though she was there and yeah. we didn't know it. Yeah. Um, you know, they kind of stake out. They have just exchange of two lines, but it, it tells you so much. Jo- like, Cole is, Joan saved us. You know, like, it's. It's hopeful. It's and Cassie's like we're not saved. You know, this is us going in circles, um, and that I think that just tells you where they are. They are at two different places emotionally, um, and then it takes you sort of to um, 
talking about sort of the beginning and the end, another sort of homage to the pilot is Cassie and Cole walking outside in kind of a, um, you know, it's cold out apocalypse. Cassie has her mask back on, you know, which we used to see her wear in season two. But with the mu- with the music playing and them walking in slow motion through this sort of post-apocalyptic landscape, it is reminiscent of Cole and Ramsey doing that in the pilot. And, you know, of course, the end of the episode is going to take us back to that. Mm. Um, did you guys, like, listen to the, the words? The song is um, Too Late for Us by Kelsey Carter, um, who's done so many songs for the show, including the Don't You Forget About Me cover in Demons. Did you guys listen to the words? Oh, yeah. Because the wor- if I, Every time I watch this episode, I'm just like, yeah, we get it. Just, like, beat me over the head with it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, it hurts. Like, it's, like, too spot on. It's just, like, so painful. <laughs> it's so painful. Right. It's great because the song, like, here we are again, back at the end. The record's been running back where it began. So yes. she, even she uses circular um, imagery. Swear we've been here before, but it feels a little colder now. We don't need tomorrow, babe, to figure that out. All these changes rearranging the same broken pieces. Um, is it too late for us? Have we fallen too far? Are we spinning too fast? Round and round and round we go. <laughs> it's pretty, um, it's pretty great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely like twisting the knife. Um, and then we see there's a lot of great clues for future episodes. We see Olivia's mugshot, which is going to be 45 RPM. And then we have the room, um, we get to see sort of the ruined version of 607, um, Cole's like dad humor about housekeeping. <laughs> Hasn't been doing a great job. He picks up the tab can from Immortal. Um, and then we see Jennifer's drawings. And first they pick up the picture of the dying man. They don't know, am I right in thinking they, they don't know that that's Ethan or what Jennifer did? Yeah, they don't, I don't think they know yet. Um, yeah, I don't think they would know that. Yeah. And then you have Cole pick up the drawing of the Ouroboros. And there's so much that I find in this moment and going into the situation room that is painful watching Cole be the kind of only in this moment hopeful cheerleader about the mission and there's a riddle and my future self told me, you know, Jennifer's the key and there's a beginning and an end. And he's, his future self is kind of what's giving him this hope, but all of this is to erase him. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> it's really poignant when you rewatch these scenes. Yeah. Where he's got like this drive to like find this answer that there is an answer and the answer is that he's the demon, that he's the thing that has to be undone. Right. Um, there's some really clever uh, camera work. Did you guys notice how it goes from the drawing of the Ouroboros to Cole to Jones to Hannah? Oh, I didn't notice <laughs> that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. And you're like, oh, because it is an Ouroboros. Like, Cole has this riddle because of her, right? Like, <laughs> she probably passed that down thinking back to this room when they were all talking about it. Um, you know, and Hannah obviously also knows it's important because she says, you know, Jennifer used to wake up drawing it, like from, you know, having nightmares and drawing it. Um, and, you know... Obviously, also, there's the shout out, like, we're not giving up. And that all comes from the family Jones. Tell me, um, 
it's pretty grim. Like the whole team is really kind of given up. Like even Jones at this point. Um, because what is, do you do now? Yeah, it's another Ouroboros, I mean, right? You need yeah. time travel to do the mission, but you need time. You think you need time travel to fix. Like you can't time travel because you would need to time travel to be able to fix the machine. And Coles's proposal is pretty desperate, right? Like, yeah. hope there's something left under the rubble. Then also, just kind of like, what is the mission anymore? We're just killing Olivia. You know what I mean? Is that going to do it? I guess because they were, you know, they were off to kill the witness when it was Ethan. Like, is that the end goal? Right. I think they're all just I'm, kind of scattered. I'm not saying that wouldn't make yeah. sense, but it's all just kind of like, okay, we were all going in one direction, then we were going at each other's throats, and now all of that has unraveled, and, like, now what? Yeah, right? and, and if it is, if the mission is to, you know, kill Olivia, then there's also the problem of how do you find Titan? You know, like, the problem that they have to face after they, you know, actually get things up is like, how do you find Titan in time and space? You know, like, how right. do you even, how do you even go about <laughs> pursuing that goal in the first place right which is another great um kind of inversion like in 401 you have titan coming after them right and mm-hmm. they're desperately trying to defend it the pilot i mean the the series finale is going to be them luring titan on purpose mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but having a plan right it's like almost kind of like a redo um i mean with the other pieces you know obviously cole has this interaction with his future self which is giving him sort of a hope that maybe the rest of them don't have that you know he just walked around where he had met his future self but it's also kind of bringing the story back around that it's cole believing in jennifer when nobody else does Mm, yeah you know, he's like, my future self told me that, the, you know, it's chock full of nuts, right? Like, we have to find Jennifer. Jennifer is the key. And everybody else is kind of like, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, there's no mission, right? Um, tell me your feelings when the camera moves to Hannah's face watching him walk out. <laughs> uh, just like all of the sort of dramatic irony of rewatching this and knowing that Hannah is his mother – when nobody on screen knows it is just as like a stab to the chest. Yeah, it was all just like right there. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Because she's like drawn to him without even knowing it. You know yeah, what I mean? It's like, yeah. it was like Aaron was talking about earlier, just like that instinctual mm-hmm. like draw of like protect your progeny, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Like she, she yeah. doesn't really understand why. But like she's also, I think, the person who, you know, has hung on to a little bit of hope. Um, you know, and is willing to kind of like go with him on that like sliver of hope that maybe we'll find something. Um, and I wonder if like sort of for her, like there's like that sort of pull to him and the the way that she consciously processes it processes it is just by kind of like believing in him when nobody else does, which also <laughs> Uh, right, and right. And also, yeah, you no one else does. <laughs> yeah, it's what moms do. And like the whole. That's also, though, I, I mean, I will say, I don't mean to diminish this at all, but she also very much believes in Jennifer. That's mm-hmm. true. Yes. It, it, mother, right? Another mother. mother. Not, of not course. Yeah. Logical mother. Yeah. Yes. Like she's also the one who's sort of like, who will be like, yes, we have to find Jennifer. That is the answer. And that's the goal. So, yeah. Um, I'm, and part of it, like watching Cole's, you know, he's striding out of the room because every, everyone else has given up. 
and it's making him angry, right? And he's just listed everyone that they've lost, you know? Like, he's listed all of the sunk costs and the sacrifice and, like, they died for us. <laughs> like, you know? And, but, the, but part of who Cole is with the only failure is giving up, it, it actually came from in the woman who's watching him walk out of the room is going to, who's going to be the only person to go follow him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's just, it's just all so lovely and poignant and God, they just make us like the fucking feelings. <laughs> ah, so that takes us to Cole walking alone. And just like 301, when Cole was out on a mission by himself, and then Hannah grudgingly went because Jones asked her to go with Cole. Now she's, for reasons she can't quite understand, compelled to go with him. And, you know, I love that he knew that she was following him for miles. (laughs) And finally, he's like, all right. And then... I should have known you'd be too stubborn. Mother would say we have that in common. I got so many feels just like imagining a world in which, you know, like they actually got to be grandmother, mother, you know, grandson. And like how exasperated Jones would have gotten with (laughs) Hannah and Cole. You know what I mean? Just like... <laughs> like she yep. got her plan. Like this is what we're again with like Thanksgiving. This is our plan. We got our plan. This is what we're doing. And they're just like, what if we stuck cranberries inside of like I don't know the green casserole <laughs> yeah. or something like that? <laughs> you know what they would say? All of them. They would down the line would say, you know, okay, you little shit. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, and there's something also about. um They've always been, you know, there was a lot of humor in their scenes together in 301, and it was kind of like an unexpected pairing. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a nice chemistry with one another. Brooke Williams' delivery of, may I walk with you? And when Cole says, what for? The way she says, so that you do not walk alone, breaks me. Uh, mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> even before you knew, right? Like, yeah. even I didn't yes. know at this point. I had no inkling, no. but I'm like, and cry. <laughs> yeah. Cry, yeah. It's such a simple, like, there's so much. Yeah, let's get, we're going to get to the added layers. But just before you even know that that's his mother, um, Cole, you know, where that comes from a place like, why would you want to walk with me? You know, a feeling alone, right? Like there's no mission reason why you would. And then she expresses the the simplest so that you're not alone. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, like, oh, <laughs> it's just like, you know, in, in the moment he's feeling the most alone and that nobody's with him and she's there. Now let's add to it that Cole spent his entire life thinking that his mother wasn't there. And in this moment, she has been walking with him for miles and walking with him on this really lonely journey and how symbolic that is of all of the moments that she was there during his life that he didn't know, right? Like what she says in One Minute More, I was there when you found your brother. I was there when you lost your father. All the times that he thought that he was alone and she was really there and like... That this is uh, that this is a woman that that is drawn to her son to walk with him, but soon is going to have to give him up to protect him. Like God, the scene made me cry before, and now it's just like they're 
fucking feels monsters. How fucking dare you, Tina? Now I'm going to cry again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if I'm going to, I'm bringing the ship down with me because it's just like, there's so much... There's so, it's so poignant for both of them, right? Like, this is the son that she's not going to be able to raise, but she's going to find a way to be with him as much as she can, even if he doesn't know. He has spent his whole life thinking his mother abandoned him. She's right there. And not only is she right there, but she's emotionally there for him. And neither of them understand why. And you know what? The other, like, another layer of feels there is that that is exactly what happened with her, with Hannah and her mother. That she had to grow up without her mother, not knowing anything about her mother, having been sort of like left or abandoned by her mother, only to find out later on that she was there all along, that she moved heaven and earth to, you know, like to be with her and to save her and to take care of her. (laughs) (laughs) I got you back. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) Please nobody forget that Hannah's actually going to die for him. No. You could. You had to I win, could. didn't you? You had to I win. I did. <laughs> Damn In the spirit of one-upsmanship. <laughs> really, really, it's none of our faults. Is it's the writer's fault? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's not. We can just be mad at them. It's not our fault. <laughs> um, the, I love the um, like the comedy where they're like. <gasps> Scavs, and there are scavs. It's fucking Cole and Ramsey, like the first two scavs we ever met. Um, that is such an amazing, mind blowing uh, moment for an episode that has been putting an Ouroboros in our face. That's called the end to show us Cole watching pilot like pilot cole and ramsey and then like they're going to the cdc for the watch and then and then you have cole being like what do you think she's gonna believe me hi i'm cole from the future i'm here to save mankind it's ridiculous like (laughs) oh it's so great i think also like uroboros wise and you know for for like knowing what the end game the coming end game is um i think it's significant that you know like cole is the only character in this episode who sees himself in the past uh, no, so far, yeah. you know, so we start out and we start out, you know, he's talking about future Asil, you know, future him. They wind up at the Emerson, which is where he w- he encountered his future self. And now he's encountering his past self. So Cole within this episode kind of kind of is locked in his own like Ouroboros of uh, of selves. Yeah, it's kind of a clue as to what the problem is. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's such a good point, Aaron. Um, and I love how this show, whenever they've wanted us to, like, when they use, the, like, the classic placard that goes up, with the black and white with the time, it's so great when they pull one over on us <laughs> and, it's, and it goes up and they're like, haha, it's 2043, fuckers. <laughs> you thought you knew, but you didn't. <laughs> so great all right we have saved perhaps the best for last (laughs) this was so necessary by the way it was so necessary i know i know who's on this pod this week (laughs) (laughs) jennifer in 2018 prog go oh my god this is 
I mean, like, how can you pick a favorite Jennifer moment? But this is definitely in the top, like, three. And, like, I remember the first time sort of watching, you know, like, they, like you go through the first time and, like, she does a little, like, backflip thing. And it was like, I, you know, I was... I was sort of ready to, like, suspend disbelief and be like, yeah, okay, sure, why not? Like, you know, it's Jennifer. Who the hell knows what Jennifer knows how to do? You know what I mean? Like, she's constantly yeah, maybe like, Ethan taught her. Yeah, like, maybe Ethan taught her. Maybe, maybe Jennifer taught her. At, or, not, or uh, sorry, Cassie taught her at some point. Or, you know, like, or maybe, like, one of her other pri- – you know, like, who the hell knows? Like, th- it could be – maybe maybe Hannah taught her. One of the daughters taught her. Like, you just kind of – I was, like, ready to roll with it. Like, why not? Uh, yeah, just make excuses. It's fine. Whatever. Moving yeah, on. Like, I'm, I'm totally happy to, to do it. But when it like looped back around and they showed what actually happened, and then the, oh like, my god, the like the like leverage heist music was playing in the background. Yes, yes. I lost yes. my shit. I was like, this is like a next level brilliant. You know, like you had me. I was willing to roll with you, and then you're like, lol, never mind. This is what she feels like inside her mind. <laughs> Not only is this the funniest thing I've ever see like one of the funniest things I've ever seen on television but also it's the most fucking relatable thing I've ever seen on television because like you know you have those moments especially after you've gone to see like a spy movie or whatever where you're like, well, like yeah like I could be like you know this cool spy chick but you know in real life we would all look like Jennifer just like rolling around in the corner, smashing the glass with a brick <laughs> like waving your right, hand like I- and kicking the guy in the balls like yeah it was gorgeous. Right. Like, like, yes, I was I was Cindy Bristow for Halloween one year wearing that wig, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I was rolling around like a hedgehog and not, right? Like, I mean, and I know, I know that they did it. Like, people have asked on Twitter, was that a specific alias, you know, with the wig shout out? And I believe Tara Mattel was like, no, like, we actually just found that wig and thought it was great. But you guys know that I am like the biggest fucking alias fan ever. <laughs> Sydney Bristow is one of my favorite characters. So when I saw that it was like, like Jennifer, you know, who loves pop culture in like wearing accidentally one of the most iconic, you know, kick-ass female spy looks ever, I lost my shit <laughs> because I was like, yes, if I were Jennifer, I would pretend that I was Sydney Bristow yes. too. <laughs> It's just like, and again, like, you know, I know it's sort of like, oh, you know, Chuck Flynn, Jennifer, but it's also like, I think that's a fairly normal thing to do. Like, how would you, how would I like get my, if I had to pull off a heist, if I had to like <laughs> rob a museum, just being regular old me, like how the hell would I even get myself up to like do that, to like be able to have the balls to do it? And I would definitely be imagine like pretending in my mind that I was like, <laughs> yes, basically a Sydney Bristow, right? Like it would all just be sort of like, all right. We're going to do make-believe, and I'm just going to, like, believe so hard that it's going to work, that it'll work. And I also love that, like, ultimately the thing that makes it work is, like, not that it was such an amazing heist, but that the, like, the, the rent-a-cops were just sort of like, eh, fuck it. Like, yeah, he's like <laughs> exactly. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Literal apocalypse is happening. Like, whatever. Fuck it. <laughs> also, right. the laugh he got out of it. Like, I, yes, I really, yes. truly love that the way that they revealed it was with the security footage. Yes. Because it's like, that can't be a lie. Like, that's what really just happened. You know, you don't have to wonder, like, wait, what's going on? It's like the guy's looking back and just laughing his ass off, and you're like... Yep, that's Jennifer. That makes a lot more sense. Until he finally says, yeah. and you can see him go like, ah, oh, fuck, all right. I probably should go do my job, you know? <laughs> I, I, I love, I love that Jennifer, <laughs> I love that 
change. Like, like, I mean, the one thing I would change if I was doing a heist and I was pretending to be Sydney Bristow, I don't, would not be talking to myself. I'd be talking to Michael Vaughn in my ah. ear. But, <laughs> but she's taught for, for, you know, just reasons. But like, she, she's talking to herself. When we first see it, right? Like you're hearing Jennifer's voice back. But then when you watch what really happened, she's literally talking to herself out loud. (laughs) I mean, but look back to like Paris. She's always been her own cast of characters. Like Exactly. That's just who she is. And again, who among us has not had a conversation, like an imaginary conversation, in which even if you didn't like say the parts of it out loud, like I definitely like have had imaginary conversations with myself in public where my face was definitely like reacting, you know, like I was like <laughs> in response yeah. to the imaginary conversation. And if anybody had been filming me, I would have looked insane. Yes, so, like, absolutely. Again, absolutely. Relatable. <laughs> yes, right? Like that person last week was like, why is that lady so fucking sad in the cereal aisle? <laughs> but I was having a conversation in my head about Deacon. Um, you know what it just made me think of? Because obviously the music is playing like in the show, but if it were me, like, have you guys ever seen The Emperor's New Groove? Yes, yes. Yeah. 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 And so you have Kronk, like when he's trying to steal something and he's like <laughs> singing to himself, you know, he's like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I would be going, full, I would be doing that. <laughs> I would be going full Mission Impossible music, like, dun, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you're trying to sneak and you're like literally making noise the whole time just to like get yourself in that weird groove spot. It's just what it reminded me of, of like that I feel like Jennifer would have been making the music herself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, the also, I mean, okay, so we have like, you know, the uh, the comedy of the backflips are actually her rolling around like a hedgehog. <laughs> the, the the mission impossible, like laser glass cuttings, her just actually fucking shattering the case. Her like really like, you know, martial arts fighting the guy. She really just punched him in the nuts like we all would. <laughs> you know, like all of it. It's so like side by side, like this is what happens. You know, she's referencing in Thomas Crown Affair or Mission Impossible, and this is how the rest of us would steal that. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but the this right- guy's history. <laughs> There's- yeah. In a museum, you guys. Stop it. Uh, no, I know. Abort catchphrase. Abort catchphrase! Oh my god! <laughs> You'd be telling yourself that is a terrible catchphrase, Jennifer. No. Um, there's some good there's a great meta moment, by the way, earlier before Jennifer um, uh, you know, in, is doing her heist between the two security guards where they're talking about the plague and the guy's like, yeah. they're, ne- they're never going to find a cure. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, right? Because we're going back to the beginning of the story and the audience is like, are they ever going to fucking solve this plague? <laughs> like, no. They are not. Nope, they are not. <laughs> Narrator, no, they will not. <laughs> um, if we, that actually, like, if that takes us, do you guys have anything else sort of about the museum scene? Not the museum scene, although I do have feelings about Jennifer all alone in 2018 yes. with only her imaginary mm-hmm. friends to comfort her. Yes, and I, I don't want to, I don't know if I'm reading too much into this, but, and I know originally when they, I believe Terry Mattel said when they wrote this scene, or maybe it was Chantretta, that they had actually envisioned her having multiple Jennifers there. Mm. Um almost kind of like an orphan black thing, Mm -hmm. but that it was, it proved to be too complicated. But what 
part of me when I was watching this t- this time you know you've got you've got the Jennifer like part of part of Jennifer's whole journey this whole show but like particularly this season um is her kind of gaining the self-confidence to believe that she's the one like like Ethan said, right? Like, this is your mission now. You're the one that has to solve this. And I didn't know, like, what's your take? Because a little bit of me thought about it, like, one, the one Jennifer that's the real Jennifer, you know, is insecure and not sure what to do. And her imaginary friend Jennifer is the super confident one. Mm-hmm. And kind of, it's really interesting when you think like psychologically, Jennifer inventing this other version of herself that is more confident to give for her to talk to. Well, I've literally, like, if you're just thinking about sort of Jennifer, <laughs> almost like Jennifer's like primary imposter syndrome, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like I can't possibly be the key to all of this. I can't possibly be, you know, the best of us, the most important one. Um, I mean, like, I really relate to that because like, <laughs> there was a phase when I was writing my dissertation where like, literally what I had to do to get to like be able to put aside my imposter syndrome enough to be able to write my dissertation was like, I, I had to like, pretend to be somebody else. Like I had to sit down to write and be like, all right, I am now putting on the persona of like a really like, you know, confident, arrogant, like academic person who is like capable of writing these things and just believes that anyone who doesn't, you know, like believe what I think is right is right is stupid. Like I literally like, (laughs) I kind of had to do that. You know, I was like, I will not picture myself as like, like an old man with like a bowler hat and a mustache. And like, this is how I'm going to like get through this. So yeah. like, again, hashtag relatable Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so funny, Erin. You say that. I think about, I think about the first time I had to do a court argument, and you know, obviously, you're like preparing, like you're going to study for like an oral test, right? Yeah. But but what I needed to feel confident to go do it is I like fucking obsessed over my like what suit, and I remember my husband being like, okay, like yeah, that's a important but like what and it was like no because I don't actually feel like that like imposter syndrome right like I don't feel like I'm actually but but if I put this thing on then it's almost like I'm playing a role and then maybe I can do it exactly right yes even though all the tools are it's you know like you can recognize later on that it's like that's stupid right the tools were all there and nothing to do with putting that on but like you almost need to do that as almost like to get over that that like self-doubt yeah, exactly. It's like I Yeah, it's another link to like I mean this is not what he meant, but it's it's kind of a link to like all the world's a stage. Like we're all just yeah. pretending to be somebody we're not. We're all actors. Right, exactly. <laughs> but no, but it's true because it's sort of like the me that I know, like the me that is that is inside of my head. Like I you know, like I can't like I can't possibly be this person. I can't possibly be capable you know, like how arrogant of me to think that I am the one who can like you know, save the world or write this thing or present this argument. And so it's almost like you have to like step out of yourself a little bit, like allow yourself Mm -hmm. to just be like, I'm just going to like, I'm just going to like pretend I am the person that I imagine is someone who could do this, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And that's how I get through. That's how I become that person is that I like, I imagine myself into being that persona. Um, And the thing is, she did it. She did, you know. She fucking she went to the museum. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I mean, granted, it's plague times, and and the officers didn't care, but she fucking did it. Meanwhile, team <laughs> team Splinter is like tw- 
twiddling their thumbs, right? In yeah. 2043, what's this riddle mean? And Jennifer's like, yo, I just fucking stole it. <laughs> so <laughs> what is it? What do I do with it? No clue, but it's no idea. <laughs> but there's also like there's the other piece of the the other Jennifer, which I think is like the one that like really is so poignant and heartbreaking is that, you know, is like she also has to invent that her because she's so lonely, you know, like mm-hmm. she's so alone and she's so unsure and she's completely cut off from the people that she cares about and the people kind of for whom that she's doing this, you know, like she knows that um, that Cole and Jones and everybody are out there, but she has no way of getting to them and she has no way of knowing that they're ever going to get to her, you know, so she's like running completely on faith. Um, yeah. And in the middle of the plague. Yeah, in the middle of the plague as everything is falling apart around her, you know, like running, also running on this kind of like, like this this intuition instinct that she only kind of half, maybe half understands. Um, and and so, you know, like, and, and, and Jennifer so desperately needs friends because she was so alone for so long. You know, this is almost kind of like a return to that point when, you know, the, at the start of the last, you know, the original plague when she was shut up in a mental hospital kind of all alone. Um, and, and so she needs someone to get her through it. And so she has to kind of like invent a friend, you know, like – it kind of breaks my heart that her imaginary her calls her kiddo all the time. You know what I mean? Just like mm-hmm. she just needs someone to be like her like pep talk, um, you know, like I believe in you, buddy. And the thing that like yeah. I love so much about Jennifer, like this is the Jennifer who, you know, when she encountered her, you know, like chicken egg Jennifer who could look at herself and say, I love you. Like this is like the piece of Jennifer in all of the sort of pain and suffering she's gone through and the doubt and everything else, like this is the piece of Jennifer that I think what makes her so amazing and the, one of the reasons I love her so much is that she she always has this piece of her that that loves herself and values herself and can look at herself and think like, what do I need to give myself right now? And she gives that to her. Um, and like, that's fucking hard, you know? Like that's that's something that I really admire about that character. It's interesting yeah. though, because in contrast to that, like the imaginary friend is like not very nice to her true that is true yes she's like whatever psycho like you know what i mean she's <laughs> she's definitely got all of like the 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 self-esteem not the self-esteem but like the it does it does it feels like her sort of like record like even as she's doing this and she knows she needs it recognizing like this is a patently insane thing to do is to like invent a persona and talk to it you know, nut or butter, like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, that, that bit of your self-talk where you're just like, wow, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Yes, I do. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, like you said, Cece, you know, like, like Will look, or your husband looking at you and being like, uh, why are you obsessing over your suit? That is, like, not a logical thing to do. And you're like, look, this is my process. <laughs> I need a costume if I'm going to go do this. I'm aware do this thing. that it's insane, but this is what we're doing. Yeah. I'm aware what I should be doing is rereading the case law, but instead I'm going to be obsessing about my suit. Um, and I was kind of watching it with a with a critical eye in context of like a lot of the things she's gone through before, especially mm-hmm. like in season two when they presented her more as like, you know, the mental illness aspect, even when she was out, it's like when she went through everything in 205 and like seeing her mom and all that stuff. I kind of tried to like 
put those things together, reconcile them. And it was confusing for me. And I was like, what are they saying here? Either, you know, intentionally or inadvertently, like, where is this fit in the context of like, what's been presented about what you could call it real world wise about like Jennifer's mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I finally kind of had to come to the point where I saw this interaction as more like what Deacon went through in Titan. Yeah. Like this is just a physical like representation to the audience of what's going on in her head and not so much like, like obviously they're not trying to say again or, or, to the fact of like, oh my God, she's schizophrenic or no, like no. having dissociative identity, like that are aware of each other. Cause I went through like all this stuff in my head and then I was like, you know what? I'm just going to need you to like reject all those premises because it just like really doesn't yeah. fit. And yeah. Think, like, and one key difference, you know, is that with Deacon, who's like, I think sort of more inactive hallucinations. Cause Deacon had kind of has that moment where he's like, oh shit, like this isn't real. You know, like this is me talking. Whereas Gemini, I think is totally aware all the time. Like, you know, she, we kind of, like, see her. Yeah. We see her kind of, She's like... She's in control. Yeah, but she is, like, completely aware all the time that, like, that this, you know, like, sort of projected imaginary best... Like, you know, she's like, you're my imaginary friend. Like, I, this is what I'm doing. This is my coping mechanism right now. And she's completely mm-hmm. aware of and in control of the fact that she is using this as a coping mechanism, which I actually kind of like in a lot of ways. Even oh, yeah. Thinking about, like, like, mental illness and sort of, like... Like the thing isn't the thing isn't like about mental illness isn't like well what you need to be is to to be cured so that you are neurotypical right like it's just like she's just like I'm gonna work with what I got and what I got is a really vivid imagination you know what I mean so like I'm just gonna mm-hmm. leave that yeah. this is the thing that's gonna save me in this moment honestly is being a little bit chock full of nuts you know like if yep. I wasn't chock full of nuts I would not be able to walk into a museum solo. <laughs> and like walk out with a with a you know priceless artifact right because right? you wouldn't like you have to be a little bit crazy otherwise you wouldn't even think you could do that right. you just <laughs> like, be like that's impossible you know <laughs> yeah 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 and i mean the other thing that's great is like so many other things in this episode there the circle we began the episode with Chorus holding the Ouroboros and and knowing that it's now in her charge, right? And it's meant for James Cole. And we end the episode with Jennifer holding that artifact, which has been handed down like through the ages, um, and that it's meant for James Cole and James and and Cole wondering about it, knowing mm-hmm. that he needs to somehow get to Jennifer. And so it's the or the actual artifact that is an Ouroboros like takes us on a circular journey in this episode, right? Mm-hmm. Like we start with it and we end with it, and then we get the flashes of of visions in Jennifer's head, which now we understand it goes from Andrews to the primaries to Jennifer drawing the code, right? Mm. You've got the conversation between Andrews and the primaries at the beginning of the episode talking about the weapon. We see Jennifer drawing the code. The code is the weapon. Mm-hmm. It's all fucking right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, to go back to your saying, you know, and sort of what we were talking about, like, um, you know, the kind of like seeing the puzzle from above about Hannah being Cole's mother, when you go back and watch, it's like, that's what's happening with Jennifer, of course, is that she's got all the pieces, but she can't see how they fit together. I guess that's literally what happens with the code, right? Like, mm-hmm. they're trying to figure out what she wrote on the walls, and then she's like, you have to go up and look down. Oh yeah, God. they literally have to be above it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're going to make this real literal for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. Um, Can I also please say, because I know we're about to transition out. This is like kind of a random insert, but since we were talking about like the middle age stuff and, you know, it goes all the way back and they're like James Cole. Like, I just love that he's not special. Like, I love that he's the problem. He's not just this like chosen sainthood of like, of course, we all know your name. You're the you're You're the the chosen one. It's like, dude, you have wrecked like all of time. (laughs) We know your name because you (laughs) fucked it up so bad. (laughs) Right. I mean, but that's I think that's one of the reasons why um, this story is so. We love it. One of the reasons why I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but why I love it so much is that, you know, the opening of this episode with the medieval times and the, you know, knights and somebody whispering centuries ago the name James Cole, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's such like the all of the stories we grew up with about mm-hmm. the chosen one, the mm-hmm. special one. And the thing is... James Cole is just a very, and I, I don't mean this at all as a negative thing. He's a very average man. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. he may have, he may have more determination and hopefulness, like, and being hopeful than maybe, maybe a lot of us would in the circumstances, right? That he's been put in. Maybe that's what's remarkable, remarkable about him, but like he doesn't have superpowers. It's not like he's like some special chosen one that's like a descendant of somebody, right? Like, and you know, this isn't like a King Arthur story, like, right? Like only he can like lift the sword out, right? Like, no, it's because he's actually the fucking problem. <laughs> and so it's like combining both and a, a truly average person whose name is the one being whispered throughout the centuries, which turns all of that chosen one on its head, but it yeah. turns it on its head another way because he's the one that has to be erased. Yeah. It's and yeah. they're totally- also largely like out of no fault of your own because it's just like way to be born, dumbass. Like- <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But like the whole beginning of this episode is totally fucking with us on all of the things that we have watched, like Lord of the Rings and all of these epic stories where the name has been whispered through centuries, James Cole. It's like, no. It's yeah. just, and we're sort of primed to think like whispered through centuries would be like with reverence, James Cole. But it's actually- No, it's like, been gossiped through centuries. It's the dude James Cole, God. That guy. <laughs> you know, it's a, he, you know, he. I think he can wear a leather jacket better than a lot of men, but he's just the dude that wears, he loves cheeseburgers and he needs to be erased. <laughs> you know, like, Yeah. Uh, so I think if you guys don't have anything else about the episode that leaves us just our Ouroboros rabbit hole Um, and they put it in the guided tour of the museum so no one make fun of me for for going down this rabbit hole Um, (laughs) (laughs) well they will make fun of me whatever All right. so the guided tour when Jennifer is walking through the museum before uh, the Thomas Crown affair begins um, the voiceover uh, on the loudspeaker in the museum is the Ouroboros, the universal symbol of the beginning and the end. The self-eating snake represents to many cultures the song of inevitability that fate is inescapable. To psychology, it's our shared understanding of life and death, birth and rebirth. So there's a couple fun, um, and one of them actually, Aaron, will relate back to the first time you're on the podcast and you talked to us so much about Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so the first, um, I'll just run through really quickly. First known appearance of, of the symbol of an Ouroboros is from ancient Egypt. 
um, from the tomb of King Tut. Um, and it had to do with the god Ra, and it was sort of a divine figure that was supposed to represent the beginning and the end of time. And it's interesting because that, you know, that, even that terminology, you know, like it also appears in Christianity, right? Like I'm the alpha and the omega, right? Like the beginning and the end, um, the beginning of the world, the like, you know, resurrection of the world, all of that. Um, and then it also like was used sort of throughout um, ancient Egypt and then was sort of co-opted by sort of the Romans where it became sort of like, um, like talisman. Um, and would be kind of like represent sort of like, like a magical emblem. And also sort of the Romans looked at it as representing the cyclical nature of the year. So actually thinking is sort of about the passage of time or a year sort of in the symbol of the snake going around in the circle. Um, the, it also popped up, um, I'll save the alchemy thing in a minute. It also pops up in Norse mythology. Um, <clears throat> one of the three children of Loki is an Ouroboros who's a serpent named, anybody want to take a stab at this? Uh, Jormungandr? Jorm, I think Jormungandr. Jormungandr. Yeah. Ooh, that was a nice, you, thanks, Aaron. Wow. <laughs> I have called um, Loki Norse. <laughs> um, and there's a whole story there where it guards the tree of life. Um, so it's kind of interesting, like thinking about that. The piece that has to do with alchemists um, is that the Ouroboros was one of the oldest images linked with the legendary opus of alchemists, the Philosopher's Stone, which was trying to break the cycle of birth, like recognizing the circle or the cycle of birth and death, but alchemists trying to break that cycle and achieve like liberation from death, which mm -hmm. obviously we've talked about is that, you know, that's the goal of the Red Forest. Mm -hmm. And I remember you talking about alchemists, right? Like Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein is trying to bring something back to life, right? Defeat death. Yes, um, and actually, in in um, the novel Victor Frankenstein, before he before he goes to college and studies uh, chemistry for a hot second, um, he when he was growing up, he read out like the the books of the alchemists. Like he he practiced alchemy for a while, um, and then he sort of gave it up, and then went to college, and then at the point when he sort of has that moment when he like conceives of the plan to create the creature, he goes back to the alchemist so um and there's actually arguments because like the book doesn't um doesn't state directly what uh like how he animates the creature and there's there are sort of references like we know like uh the sort of electricity thing isn't in the book you know like the the movie thing where it's like lightning bolts in the neck and whatever um that comes from the movies although i think it also comes from um like experiments with like running electrical current into dead bodies of things was happening at the time that Percy Shelley was really into. But also there's like a lot of evidence in the novel that the, that the way that Victor made the creature was basically through alchemy. Got it. So, yeah. so and it I is think like, it's like, it is, it is an alchemical thing. And that sort of that search for immortality and, and to kind of like master and break the natural cycles is like, that's like, that's alchemy in a nutshell. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting that this symbol of a snake eating its tail has for like throughout human history symbolized the passage of time, the cycle of life and death. It was adopted by people trying to break the cycle of life and death, right? And so, you know, all of these are such 
you know, the themes of the show, um, that it's just, you know, this show is always so well-researched, but um, it's just like, you know, these are the things that kind of make it next level, you know, like um, they're taking a symbol that, and making it a symbol of the show. And yet, like, we think it's associated with the army of 12 monkeys, but, and it is summarizing the problem, but it also represents the solution. Um, but that's not to break time. It's to restore the passage of time and the cycle of life and death. Um, and then the other one, you know, they, they talk about um, in the museum voiceover that psychologists um, also have explored sort of the, the idea of a snake eating its tail um, and understanding life and death and birth and rebirth. But also there's a little bit, um, and maybe we can ask Megan about this, um, in Jungian psychology that has to do with sort of like the human consciousness and the way we devour ourselves, <laughs> which that was sort of the terminology, which is kind of interesting, just thinking back to what we were talking about with Jennifer, right? Um, and self-doubt and like kind of those ideas. But so yeah, it's a, it, as the museum voiceover said, um, it's a symbol that has meant many different things to different cultures um, or groups of people throughout time. And one way or another, all seem to be related to the themes of the show. Yes. All right. Um, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank it was you so for fun to me. have you on. Yes. Um, hopefully we'll have you back one more time. We I ourselves are at the beginning of the end. So <laughs> yes. Anytime, yeah. I'd love to come back uh, to talk about any episode of this season because they're all just like so so good and so emotional. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. We, I mean, we almost, this is only the season premiere and we like basically had a, let's see if we can make each other cry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. So next up we have 402 Ouroboros. Dark Amy will be joining us for that one. If you guys don't have anything else, then we'll see you soon.